the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Okay, you all know what the hell is going on, because this is all we're going to be talking about on this podcast. You know, just to give you guys a, a taste of what's ahead, Mark and I thought that we would take the opportunity to talk to a colleague, a pollster, uh, someone who Mark works with at Fox News, who has done some really interesting polling. And I will, we'll give you the full intro and the full run-up in a minute or two. But, but I do think that how the president has handled this and how he will be perceived to have handled this puts an additional burden on him that I think he didn't expect even a month ago. No, absolutely. And there's look, there's a clear effort on the part of his opponents, or a hope at least, that this will be his Katrina. That yeah. this will be his uh, the the moment when even like his you know solid forty to forty five percent supporters like start abandoning him. Right. I don't think that's very likely. I mean, there's so many unknowns here. We don't know will this hurt Donald Trump depending on how this comes out, or do the measures we take succeed in containing the the pandemic and then he's credited with the success and also. An issue, because we love to talk about foreign policy, is what role China will play in the coming election. Because, one, will China be a factor now? Because this virus did come from China. I know on Twitter you're, we're told that that's racist and you're not allowed to call it the Wuhan virus. That's because garbage. I know it is. But, I mean, you know, that's the ridiculous Twitter conversation that's happening now. People don't have but, enough t- t- things but, to do in their lives. But the, the reality is... We've discussed this on several podcasts now. Chinese totalitarianism is a public health threat to America. What happened in Wuhan has now reached every city in America, and we are all sitting in our homes. We will soon be after this podcast is over because this is our last day with access to the studio. We're all sitting in our homes, and our kids are home from school, and businesses shutting down. People are being furloughed and laid off, restaurants closing because of something that happened in Wuhan. And so will no, that... No, because of something that happened in Beijing. I don't want to blame the people of Wuhan. Yes, it's true, the wet markets, yada, yada, yada. But at the end of the day, these decisions got made at the top by Xi Jinping. Don't make it sound like we disagree about that. Yeah, no, no, no. But I mean, I, but I, I do... I, I, no, we, we totally agree that this notion of racism is just literally people having not enough time on their hands. I mean, guys, go out and get a hobby if you're really worried about the, you know, talking about this virus is racism. There's... It is, I'm and find another so name certain. for Ebola and Zika and all the other viruses. Yeah. But Trump has been... He's been good on this. He's, he's been good, been good, been good on the on China, China vector. He's been good on the China nexus. So has he been vindicated? And will he have seen have being been vindicated as saying that China's behavior is a threat to us? Will it hurt him politically? I, it's just, I don't think it's going to hurt him. I think it's just a much more a question of what have you done for me lately. The problem with the 24-hour news cycle for us is not that people will have forgotten that he was one of the first to say that we need to stop traffic from China, which he was, and he has been completely vindicated in that. The problem is that there, you know, there will have been so much water under the bridge by that point. There will have been so many stock disasters. There will be so many employment disasters that people will be focused on what it is he's going to do next. And of course, when you are the incumbent, you have all the responsibility. You know, it's awesome. You and I used to talk about this when we were in government. It's great being in the minority because it's power without responsibility. And for Joe Biden and for the Democratic Party, this is an opportunity for them to sit back because they can't deliver anything. Well, I found it fascinating in the Democratic debate 
that they had the other night that Joe Biden went after Bernie Sanders on China. He not only talked about his past support for the Sandinistas and his comments on Cuba, but then Bernie's response to that is always, well, people say that poverty is reduced in China and uh, that's not supporting totalitarianism. And basically Joe Biden said, yes, it is. <laughs> and you, you got to stop saying nice things about China. Yeah. So it's fascinating how like we've all become China hawks across across the political spectrum. Well, I, you know, and, and not a moment too soon because the threat that China represents to its own people and to us is, is very real. Although on our last podcast, Derek Scissors said Joe Biden's record when he was vice president was decidedly not hawkish on yes. China. So we're all going to have an opportunity to go back and look at that. And I'm I'm really looking forward to this. But you know, at the end of the day, this is Donald Trump's game. It is Donald Trump's game to play, and he's going to get criticized. No doubt. But I mean, this is going to obviously depend on how how the handling of the virus plays out, how the economic impact plays out. Uh, you know, Derek, uh, on the other night, he basically predicted this is going to be a V-shaped re- recession, very rapid decline and very rapid recovery once we're not, no longer locked in our houses and economic activity starts because all the fundamentals of the economy are good. Productivity is high. Unemployment is historically low. And so we we should recover quickly once we've got a handle on the virus. That's a big if. But if it does, uh, we could see a situation where the economy is booming again by the fall and Donald Trump is taking credit for having handled the, the biggest crisis of his presidency. You know, we have no idea what the next day is going to come, almost almost literally. So. We don't even know what we're going to record our next podcast. Exactly. That's how fluid the situation is. It's very fluid. But luckily, we have someone to help uh, navigate these fluid waters uh, Ooh, with us. Very nicely done. Thank you. I thought that was a pretty <laughs> elegant transition myself. Wow. Kristen Salty-Sanderson is just terrific. I'm sure you guys have seen her on Fox News, where she is a, a very thoughtful and balanced, fair and balanced almost, you could say, voice on political polling. She's a pollster in her own right. She uh, is the uh, founder of something called Echelon Insights with Patrick Ruffini. They do really, really interesting work on a whole variety of, of issues and demographics. Uh, she she really started as an expert on the youth vote, which I think is something that we're all recognizing is going to be hugely important in 2020. And uh, in 2015, she published something, perfect name, called The Selfie Vote, where millennials are leading America and how Republicans can keep up. God uh, help us. <laughs> <laughs> old people, cue old people laughing. Uh, <laughs> Get off my lawn. Yeah, oh, I sound like Joe Biden and yeah. Bernie Sanders. I'm all sorry. right. Have a listen. I think you'll all enjoy this. Kristen, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, so you're sitting there at home. The technology they have now for allowing remote podcasting is great. So I'm sure you guys will continue to have excellent shows moving forward. Absolutely. Well, look, this is not only going to affect our podcast, though that is the most important thing in the world, but it's actually going to affect the 2020 elections. We'd like to explore with you a little bit how you think this coronavirus is going to impact the campaign, both in the short term and the long term. What are your thoughts? So I think it is likely to have much more of an impact than any of the news stories we've experienced over the last three years that have been billed as, this is a bombshell, this changes everything, won't this be the thing that determines the election? We've had a pretty turbulent couple of years, whether it is regarding foreign policy in the Middle East. It was not very long ago that we thought, oh my gosh, are we going to be at war with Iran by next week? There was impeachment, there was the Mueller report, that there have constantly been these stories that have been, oh no, is this going to be the thing that is the big issue that determines everything? 
And the president's job approval through all of this has stayed pretty stable, that voters for the most part have tuned out things that are not directly affecting their lives. Even if they are big and scary and monumental, they are just trying to keep their heads down and get on with their day. The difference with this story is putting your head down and getting on with your day is exactly what you're not supposed to do, that you are supposed to be keeping yourself in your home, that there are going to be massive disruptions to people's daily lives, that it's going to hit them in their pocketbooks. It is going to change the way people's lives are being experienced and for weeks, if not months at a time. And so when you have something that big, it has to affect your view of leadership and of politics. Do you have any thoughts about which way it cuts? So, I mean, for example, you know, President Trump tends to, uh, let's let's say gently, exaggerate a lot and say things, you know, he's a New Yorker, everything's the greatest, the biggest, and all the rest of it. And people sort of have baked that into their calculations. Like, okay, that's Trump again, you know, that's fine. Uh, that's just how he is, whether you like it or don't like it. But now, you know, like in a crisis like this, people are looking to the president and the government for very accurate information, and that's been a problem. Is that is that characteristic of Trump going to be a problem for him as a result of this crisis? So possibly. And I, I think the big challenge he was facing even before the coronavirus issue became so present and so dramatically uh, upended American life is that in 2016, if you had voters that did not really love either party, Trump benefited from being an unknown, of being kind of a wild card, of being you know, if you're frustrated with things, he was definitely going to be a disruptor. He was definitely going to do things differently. Um, and so you could see in a lot of, of the sort of research after the election that for folks that went to the polls and said that they didn't like both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, Donald Trump tended to win out among those folks. This time around, I think as an incumbent, he already wouldn't be getting that kind of benefit of the doubt. Now, incumbent presidents tend to get reelected for a whole variety of reasons. That's just how it, we, t- we tend to do it. We tend to reelect them. You know, if Joe Biden is able to present himself as a force that he wants to be stabilizing, that he, you know, that those are the sorts of things that suddenly people are valuing. That if unlike four years ago, where people really wanted a disruptor who was going to shake things up, and instead people are looking for stability, comfort, etc., particularly, as we saw in the midterm, suburban voters really shifting from Republicans to Democrats, suburban moms who are now having to figure out what to do with their kids because their kids' schools have closed and their whole life is being upended, and they're looking to our federal government for answers and clarity, and instead they're getting confusion and angry tweets. That's not what they're looking for. Um, And I, I think that is potentially problematic. Now, if we get through this, and in the end, everybody goes, you know what, even if our response wasn't perfect, we made it through, Trump handled this crisis well, that could be a real boost to him. It could make him seem like he is this stabilizing force. And given all things being equal, why don't we just stick with the guy we know rather than change to the guy we that, that would be a change? So I, I pulled up the RCP numbers. There hasn't been a ton of polling, although you know, no better time to do polling than now because everybody's trapped by their phone. But uh, <laughs> but the most recent was NBC Wall Street Journal. So I, I think what you say is really interesting in the sense that when you want a security blanket, Donald Trump is not a security blanket. Donald Trump feels like you know you're running out into the Arctic with a bikini on, and uh, <laughs> not not to put that really unpleasant image in everybody's head, but. Uh, so the the latest was an NBC, NBC WSJ Wall Street Journal poll from uh, between 
March 11th and 13th. Interestingly, his numbers were still pretty high then. He was at 46 approval, 51 disapprove. And that's that's actually tighter than the average. Don't you think that it's possible that things might cut the other way, that fundamentally when Americans feel worried and threatened, they actually hark back to sources of authority, kind of like George W. Bush's approval after 9-11? Well, so it depends on is this George W. Bush's approval after 9-11 or is it George W. Bush's approval after Katrina? I think that's that's what we still don't know yet. Great um, question. Is, in contrast to Donald Trump, whose job approval has sat at about 40 to 45 percent and has barely budged from the moment he took the oath of office, you know, George W. Bush is soared after 9-11. And then by the time you got toward the end of his presidency, it cratered down into the 30s. Trump's in some way, because the country is so polarized, the whole idea of could he shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and his supporters stick with him has been tested. And if his job approval stays pretty stagnant through this crisis, you know, we'll sort of know, look, even a dramatic global pandemic uh, and people still you like Trump, you stick with him, you don't like Trump, you don't. But I think this, if anything had the potential to really shake up his numbers, it would have to be something this dramatic. Because thus far, throughout all of the ups and downs of impeachment and Iran and Syria and everything, his numbers barely budged. This could be the thing that makes people think differently about this president. So how does losing the rallies affect him? Oh, interesting question. So I think losing the rallies will probably... I would assume it will affect him personally in that he, he thrives off of love them. the rallies yeah. so much. He thrives off of them. And they, they are a way for his supporters to feel a sense of unity, a sense of it's us against the world. And look, I'm here surrounded by so many people who agree with me. Look, I'm not alone. My family says I'm crazy, but I'm not crazy. Look, I'm here and all these other people are here with me. You know, so I think that they are important as a way for Trump supporters to feel solidarity in the face of a broader, you know, pop culture that sort of frowns on being a Trump supporter. I also suspect that's the sort of thing where hopefully by the summer we are past this and campaigns are able to begin resuming some kind of campaigning as normal. So I think losing rallies now in the spring of an election year is not terribly likely to have an effect. I do think if we are still facing this crisis as we approach the fall, then serious questions need to get asked about how do we conduct elections, period, in a world where having people congregate in lines in buildings is something we don't like. Hopefully, American life can resume some sense of normal rhythm by summer, and we don't have to worry about that in the short term. But that is one thing that keeps lurking in the back of my mind. So another factor that is really potentially going to hit the president, and I'm curious how you see it is one of the factors that we've all looked at is the economy. You know, with an economy as good as it was up until the moment the coronavirus struck, it seemed hard to imagine that Americans wanted would want to shift horses in midstream, given how well this particular horse is doing. That's not true either. Have you done any thinking about what that might mean in the reelect? So one of the things that most political scientists will tell you is fairly predictive of whether a president gets reelected or not, or at least their party, whether you hold the White House or it flips, is the economy in the second quarter of an election year. And so we are about to enter the thick of sort of that most predictive piece of time. 
And you are right that, I mean, Gallup was just releasing numbers a few weeks ago that Americans were feeling better about their own personal financial situation than they had since Gallup began asking that question, I think, decades ago. So, you know, absolutely wild findings on that front that were great news for Trump. But you could also always have seen glass half full or glass half empty. Glass half full is, hey, look, you know, majorities of Americans approve of the job the president is doing, and they're feeling better about the economy than they have at any point in decades. At the same time, with that kind of economy and your job approval is 44%, what's going on here? Yeah. You, have, like, you have to be actively working to have a bad job approval with that kind of economy. Well, he does every day. The second thing to keep in mind, though, is that you know I would do these focus groups around the country. I'd go to suburbs in particular because they're so politically, uh, there's such a focus on them now after the midterm. I would ask people how they felt about the economy. And the answers, and this was weeks ago, this was, this was you know, January and earlier, people would say, the economy is good. I feel pretty good about things. I see lots of construction happening in my neighborhood. That feels like a good thing, right? But it was always kind of tinged with this, I remember what it was like during the financial crisis where one day things looked good and the next day Bear Stearns was gone. And so I think there has been this latent sense out there that I have heard echoed time and again that things are good, but at any moment they could turn. And now they have. Obvious. So I think even though voters had been telling pollsters like me, I think the economy is good in the present moment, there had still been in that worry of fragility and that this could all go away at any moment, like priced into people's beliefs which may be why, even though people were giving Trump high marks for the economy in the present, they were unwilling to reward him with support for the future. Well, it's interesting because the question is is also, if we go into a recession, what kind of a recession is it? We had Derek Scissors on, who's one of our economists and China experts here the other day, and he said that it's probably going to be a, a V-shaped recession, which means it's going to be very rapid decline and precipitous decline and then rapid and big uptick because the fundamentals of the economy are good. It's just that all the economic activity is stopping because of the, of the uh, self-quarantining. One, do you think that voters are going to blame Donald Trump for a virus when they're factoring in, you know, the blame or credit for the economy? And two, if it, if we do have a V-shaped recovery that where the economy quickly comes back, will that second quarter feeling that you described uh, carry over into November? Look, if the economy is back running on eight cylinders and is, you know, going like gangbusters as we approach November, that's great news for everyone, including the president. But I, I think we are still way too early in this to even begin, you know, if, if my whole job is to look into the future and try to say what I think will happen, I am deeply uncomfortable doing that at this <laughs> moment when we don't even know what the next week will look like. I mean, certainly an economic bounce back would be great for the president, but there's also, there's the health part of this as well as the economic part of this. And while the president has consistently had pretty good marks on the economy. He has had pretty poor marks on the issue of health care just generally, which is where you get voters who are sort of open to the idea of these more progressive single payer or public option type plans. There's a sense that Trump and the Republicans have not really had much to say on the issue of health care, especially now that Obamacare is bad, has sort of exhausted its lifespan as a message for them. Do people primarily think of this as an economic problem, or does this become a problem of government dysfunction and health care, which are the two issues I tend to see pop in the top of polls, and that is, again, before coronavirus. 
that in a way, because the economy had been doing so well for so long, it had faded in voters' consciousnesses. It had been a top issue, you know, 2008 through, I guess, about 2015 or so. Economy had been the number one issue, and that got replaced by healthcare, and now has been replaced by government dysfunction in the surveys that I do. And so if this is viewed as a problem that is like, look, healthcare and government dysfunction are clearly front and center, and I don't think the president has done a good job on either front, then I think that could be very damaging. I mean, that would be maximally damaging to him. So before we'd asked you to come on to talk about the the survey that you've done on, on national security, which is something that the podcast focuses on, but you brought up something that's absolutely fascinating. And I so we're down to two dogs in the fight for the Democratic nomination, Bernie Sanders, Bernie Medicare for all Sanders, and Joe, you know, I was born in 1904, Biden. And it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting, of course, that Bernie Sanders is the young people's candidate, <laughs> despite the fact that he and, and Biden are roughly at the same age. But one of the things that came out in their first mano a mano debate was this divide over Medicare for all. And I was interested to see that the press really slammed Bernie for not being up on the coronavirus and not capable of talking about it and answered everything with this sort of cookie cutter, one size fits all. That's why we need Medicare for all. That's why we need Medicare for all. But do you think alternatively that Joe Biden, if he is meant to carry this forward into the general election, is actually woke enough, enough with the the spirit of the young people that have propelled Bernie Sanders forward, that, that he can answer the mail on being a, a good alternative on a health care for America? Yeah. So I think, you know, it's clear that there is a huge generational divide in the Democratic Party. The exit poll numbers coming out of these primary states are eye-popping in that there was a generational component in 2016, but it has really just gone on overdrive this time. And frankly, the way Joe Biden's been able to lock down the nomination has been by consolidating older Democrats. That while last time around, Bernie Sanders had some appeal with some older Democrats that appears to have largely evaporated. So the generational divide there is very stark. And I've, I've always thought that that's a risk because something for Joe Biden, because for Hillary Clinton, you know, there was she did not do significantly better among young voters versus Donald Trump than, you know, Barack Obama did against Mitt Romney. Uh, that, you know, arguably, if Donald Trump is supposed to be such an anathema to young voters, and yet Hillary Clinton couldn't win a larger share of them against Donald Trump, was, was she just not that appealing to them? And then does Joe Biden have the same problem? But I think a core difference this time around will be, one, even though in the Democratic primary, young voters are not surging to turn out, in the midterm elections, young voters did surge to turn out. We know that midterm election participation was way up across all age groups comparing 2014 to 2018. It was just a more exciting midterm for a lot of people. But the increase in voter turnout by age cohort was dramatically higher among millennials, even compared to other age groups. And once you become somebody who votes in midterms, you're definitely the kind of person who votes in presidential elections. So I think you are likely to see a lot of young people participating in the general election. And even if they aren't their hearts set on fire in love with Joe Biden, the good thing that Joe Biden has working for him is Donald Trump is very motivational very motivational to those who love him and very motivational to those who don't. So he does not need to inspire passion in and of himself because he has an opponent 
that will inspire a lot of passion for him. So that was the logic behind Mitt Romney's campaign in 2012, too, wasn't it? Do you think that anti-Trumpism is going to do for Democrats what anti-Obamaism didn't do for Republicans? Well, I think anti-Obamaism was always just much more kind of confined to the fringes. A, yeah, I, I think, you know, if you're looking at your sort of median swingish or on the bubble type voter in 2012, the just the, the demographics and who, what's motivating them would be very different than this time around folks who really feel strongly about not wanting Donald Trump to be president anymore is a, a broader group of people. And, and it frankly includes a lot of people who are more likely to be on the bubble as to whether they vote or not, especially again, younger voters. So if they are extra motivated, not by a Democratic primary where it's a bunch of old men yelling at each other on a stage, but a general election where it will be old men yelling at each other on a stage, to be fair, but will include, uh, include Donald Trump, who, again, he's very motivational, whether you love him or not. Uh, and, he, and weirdly, and weirdly, despite being older and well over 70 and in the same cohort as all these people, he doesn't seem old. He has yeah. other deficiencies, but he doesn't seem doddering or decrepit in the way that even even Bernie Sanders and certainly Joe Biden does. He definitely brings a, an energy to the table. That, is <laughs> that was so I could hear that diplomacy. <laughs> it is. We're going to have some interesting debates on our hands. If, if debates wind up happening later this year. Yeah, I want to come back to something that you had sort of mentioned earlier in the uh, interview, which is that this could have an actual impact on actual voting in terms of showing up and, and casting your ballots. If the virus either goes away but then resurges in the fall or it's still an issue in the fall, you know, it could have an impact on turnout. It would create a barrier to voting for people who are less motivated. Would that you think, turn it into even more of a base election than it's already becoming? Well, I, I think there is a real value right now with months to go for states to begin considering making moves toward expanded absentee ballot access or all-mail voting, that there are lots of states that have made that change and it's gone quite well. In those cases, you do have serious questions around things like ballot harvesting. I know right now this is something that is sort of being debated about, you know, can, can volunteers, should they be going to old people's homes and picking up their saliva-licked ballots and, you know, collecting them all and going house to house? Like that could be a potential threat. So, you know, finding ways that you can do this safely, but that can expand people's access as much as possible. I think states need to be thinking about that now. Because the last thing we want, it would be unbelievably damaging for our democracy, frankly, that at a moment when so many people have doubts about things, whether it's voter fraud, election integrity, is there meddling from other places, you know, all sorts of notions that there are exterior actors who want to harm the U.S. and in particular harm our democracy. And if all of a sudden we are not equipped to be able to function and have elections properly that can engage the most amount of people as possible, that's a huge problem. And it's especially a problem because we have so many months now until November to try to prepare for it. So it, states really do need to begin looking into ways that they can make the shifts that many other states have already made to expand the availability of mail-in ballot access so that you don't have these sort of, you know, differentials in, you know, access to being able to vote. So you give me the perfect segue. I'm really wonder if because 
we are confronting this, that we are looking at other changes. You rightly say that, you know, the landscape in the United States is going to change. People are going to have different attitudes towards what the candidates have to offer, towards how they vote, towards participatory democracy. But one of the things that we've been talking about until we turned inward really in the last three or four days um, was China. China, 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 China. And, you know, the impact that the Communist Party's mismanagement of the coronavirus had on the United States, on the spread to places like Italy and elsewhere. Do you think there's some possibility that, especially understanding and all the work that you've done recently on differing attitudes on national security, whether there might be some changes in American attitudes on foreign policy? Uh, So possibly. And I I think a lot of this will come down to, you know, right now there are what I think are very silly Twitter debates happening about, you know, should you call this a a virus that is coming from China or not? I mean, there are silly debates that are happening primarily on the Internet and are not front of mind for most Americans. But I do wonder to what extent when, when all is said and done as this unfolds, and we really take stock of how this progressed. Um, and what information people did and didn't have, how people will view China's role in all this. Because we already know that while there are certain countries that when you ask voters, do you believe country X is an adversary of ours or not, you know you know that Democrats overwhelmingly will say they view Russia as a, the biggest threat to our security, or Republicans, they'll tend to say Iran. But China is one where you actually don't see a huge partisan divide, that folks from both parties seem to be of the minds that China is a country to be sort of watched carefully and with skepticism and, you know, confronted with strength, um, but that they are not outright an adversary of ours at the moment. And so I suppose if, if this winds up being something where the Chinese Communist Party is, is viewed as being clearly culpable in what has become a global tragedy, if that shapes things at all. There was some great polling from the Pew Research Center where they have been tracking American attitudes toward other countries going back many, many years. And pretty consistently, Americans have had a positive view of China. Um, They have not really viewed China as an adversary. Those numbers have taken a dramatic, they took a dramatic dive last year. And again, that's before coronavirus. Remember, right before all of this coronavirus stuff, you know, when we were talking about Hong Kong last, it wasn't about Hong Kong's, you know, extraordinary ability to engage in social distancing and, and become a model for how you deal with this. It was about the Chinese government dealing with Hong Kong and American businesses like the NBA <laughs> trying to navigate the politics of how do you criticize China without hurting your bottom line? And, and so already this question of the world's entanglement with China and how do we engage with this massive, you know, massive, important, influential country, but do so responsibly. I think already those questions have been surfacing for Americans, and this just sort of throws it into very sharp relief. So you did this big foreign policy poll. You were pointing out that voters are less connect, concerned about foreign policy than health care, education, taxes, et cetera, because people don't really have daily contact with the issues. I think you said that the average person is more likely to negotiate with a health insurer than negotiate with Iran. But now with the Wuhan virus, people have daily contact with the effects of Chinese totalitarianism. Do you think that foreign policy will be a bigger issue and more on the forefront of people's minds? Well, this story directly connects our global world and our engagement with other countries 
to those very specific issues that people had already had top of mind. So now you may be negotiating with a health insurer about how to pay for your coronavirus test. You may be looking at your paycheck and wondering if your paycheck is going to come next month because of a virus that came from overseas. I mean, so it is what I think is gives this the most ability to pop into people's daily consciousness and reshape their thinking is because unlike the General Soleimani and then the tensions with Iran that, that occurred, the coronavirus story is one that does touch on those issues people are thinking about day to day much more so. Um, but also, you know, another big thing that I tend to find about foreign policy polling and public opinion on the issue is that people are very willing to change their mind on foreign policy precisely because they don't have as much direct uh, contact with the issue. So how someone feels about healthcare might be pretty set in stone because they've had lots of personal experience that over the years has shaped their views. Um, but foreign policy, people are much more likely to kind of outsource their decision making on these issues to trusted leaders whose judgment they follow, which again is how all of a sudden you have Democrats shifting from believing that Russia is no big deal in 2013 to believing there are a number one geopolitical foe now and, and Republicans vice versa, that people take their cues from their leaders on foreign policy issues where they don't have personal information to work on. The coronavirus story is one where now Chinese totalitarianism is in people's daily lives. I'm still curious, and I don't know that we have enough data to suggest that people are thinking about China in a negative way with regards to coronavirus on a daily basis. That for many Americans, I, I would be curious to see if this narrative changes at all over the course of the next couple of weeks. But I would assume people know that the disease originated in China, but I'm unsure how people's views on the Chinese regime itself will change as a result of this story. Right. And I mean, the problem with national security is that it has become like everything else, which is that it is viewed through a partisan prism. I mean, your polling numbers, you know, it, there was more consensus on China between Democrats and Republicans, but it was still viewed lower down than Iran and Russia and actually and North Korea in the case of Democrats. And so, you know, we'll we'll have to see. The one thing I think that does give you reason to think that this could have some legs is that it, it furthers a narrative that had already been gaining steam. As you rightly noted, the Pew report showed there's really been a sea change in attitudes towards China. It's been so much in the news because of trade, because of economic issues, because of political issues. It'll be Trump. very interesting. And because of Trump. And it'll be very interesting to see how the different campaigns actually decide to handle this uh, because there could be some real implications for, you know, the global economy as well. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, it can be easy to think about these issues in separate buckets. You have your healthcare issue over here, you have your economic issue over here, you have your foreign policy issue over here, that, that these things are all so tightly tied up in one another these days that we, we do need to think about them as much more linked than I think prior to this week many people had thought of them as being. So exit question. I mean, what is what was the most surprising thing you found uh, in your polling on foreign policy? So in, in my poll, what we did was, you know, because I find people's opinions on foreign policy can be pretty malleable. If you ask someone, well, do you support the Iran deal? Most people don't know what's in the Iran deal. The idea of a deal sounds good. Iran, maybe not so good. You know, and you're making a gut decision based on what the political leaders you trust have sort of told you about at that point. So I tend to be skeptical of a lot of foreign policy polling. What I wanted to do then was ask people questions just about their gut instinct on 
when is it good for America to work with other countries versus going it alone? And then when should America be comfortable using military strength versus just relying on sort of, you know, more soft power type tools? And so in the survey, I'd ask nine questions about military strength in different situations where, uh, you know, should we or should we not, uh, you know, do things like participate in UN peacekeeping missions, increase the size of our military, um, you know, use military force to preempt genocide or human rights violations, those sorts of things. And then on the international cooperation questions, things like, should we be promoting American values abroad? Um, should we be trying to collaborate with other countries to tackle global issues like the environment? Essentially, how much should we be looking to the rest of the world and trying to engage versus looking inward and focusing mostly on ourselves? And what we found in the survey was that Democrats, by and large, they all believe we should be looking outward. There are very few Democrats who say, you know what, let's focus home first. Let's not worry about what's going on overseas. But you do have a dramatic difference about how much comfort they have with military strength. You have real kind of hawks versus doves in the Democratic Party, but everybody's pretty internationalist. Where on the Republican side, it's a little bit more mixed. You have some more folks who are really more those kind of true, look, we need to focus at home. Let's, let's start here first. I'm less interested in cooperating with other countries or even worrying about them. Let's start here. But you also have folks who I guess are, they are more hawkish, but less interested in international cooperation. So you don't really find a lot of that among Democrats. Among Democrats who want to use the military more, they want to do so with our allies. They want to be, you know, it's not just, oh, let's use the military for our own purposes. Seeing these sort of divides, again, it's not just one question. We ask nine different questions on each of those axes to get a more complex picture of where people stand and where these divides between the parties really are. Well, it's a fascinating poll, and this has been a fascinating conversation, and I hope as the uh, as the election winds through this year, we can call on you again uh, to come and uh, give us your insight. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thanks, thanks for a ton, us. Kristen. You were awesome. All right, Danny. So Kristen's poll has a fascinating numbers here on what do voters think is the greatest threat to U.S. security. For Republicans, overwhelmingly, it's Iran. 31% said Iran was the greatest threat. For Democrats, now that the Cold War is over and the 80s called and I want our foreign policy back, uh, 34% say it's Russia. The uh, Democrats are uh, post-Cold War Cold Warriors. China is 18% of Republicans, only 10% of Democrats. So really... Uh, not a priority. Not a priority. Right. Um, and yet here we are uh, in a situation where this Chinese coronavirus, novel coronavirus has literally shut down our economy. Yeah, it's quite remarkable. And I think that that's true before the coronavirus struck. It is absolutely remarkable that a country of 1.4 billion people with a rapidly modernizing army uh, that is a known adversary to the United States that has been operating and attacking us in the cyberspace over years is clocking in at 10% for Dems and even at 18% for Republicans. A lot of this just tells us how politicized everything has become. You know, you alluded to one of our favorite and oft-quoted lines that Barack Obama hit Mitt Romney with in the 2012 debates, where Mitt Romney identified Russia as one of the greatest geopolitical threats to the United States. And Barack Obama turned around and said, the 80s called, they want their foreign policy back. You know, just to remind us that we didn't really 
didn't really love Barack Obama's foreign policy either, but that's the contempt that they had for the challenge that Russia represented. Now, of course, Russia, the 30 million people that Stalin killed, whatever. The gulags. The gulag, the captive nations, the threat to, you know, the threat to Europe. Ah, whatever. Hacking the DNC emails. Now they've crossed the line. Yeah, it was was completely (laughs) ridiculous. And the funny thing is this mania has affected everybody. So, you know, 20% overall think that Russia is a threat. 6% of the GOP, which is also stupid. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. What's what's wrong with people? How can 6% of Republican voters not recognize that an authoritarian and increasingly totalitarian regime in Russia poses a serious threat to us and to our allies? Well, because I think what Kristen was pointing out is the fact that people's views on foreign policy are less well-formed than their views on tax policy or health care or other things because they're not dealing with it every day, right? We have general views about our engagement in the world. Most Americans, I think, as a general view, are reluctant internationalists. They want us to be a leader in the world. They think it's important that we remain a superpower. They think it's important that we have a moral foreign policy, but they don't want to go slaying dragons unless they really threaten us. And so we don't think about these things until a threat comes to our door. I would venture to say that those numbers on China will be very different a month from now if you ask the same poll. You know, while we were talking, I was thinking about this. There was a, a very famous book written, I think, in 1912 by a man named Norman Angel. It has not withstood the test of time. But in it, he wrote, borders were dissolving and trade was growing and that interaction between peoples was so important and had grown so much that we would never face another world war or another war at all. And of course, two years later, we had World War I and... (laughs) And, uh, and then not long thereafter, uh, World and, War II. And Winston Churchill famously quoted that in the world crisis at the same, right before uh, World War I and said, war, he wrote, is too foolish, too fantastic to be thought of in the 20th century. Civilization has climbed above such perils. The interdependence of nations in trade and traffic, the sense of law, the Hague Convention, liberal principles, high finance, common sense have rendered such nightmares impossible. And then Churchill asked, are you quite sure it would be a pity to be wrong? And it was more than a pity, and it was wrong. (laughs) Well, and, you know, unfortunately, we are looking right now at the kind of assumptions that were made then, which is that this can't happen. The world can never go in that direction. We've gone too far. We've come too far. The globalized world, borders, whatever it is. Literally the same thing. And the answer is, you know, the gods always want to, to show us when we presume too much. Yes. So if I was in the Trump administration... Um, what I would be advising the president to do after this crisis has been I wish you were in the Trump administration. (laughs) I'd miss you, but they could use someone sensible. But if I was in the administration advising the president, after this is contained, after the virus has been, the the curve has been flattened or splattened, as uh, as Dr. Fauci said the other day, and we're starting to come out of the recovery, I would advise the president to give a major speech on the threat posed by China and to lay this at the feet of Beijing and to say that this is why I've been saying we need to move our, our supply chains out of China. This is why we need to be less dependent on China and truly lay this at their feet because, one, it would be correct. And two, I, th- I think he, we need to have a really serious discussion, as we had with Derek on the podcast the other day, about our relationship with China going forward after this, because this is the Chinese coronavirus. This is the Wuhan virus. It came here. It's shutting down our economy. And once we get a handle on this thing, we need to do something about it to make sure it doesn't happen again. Okay. And for those of you who are worried about China might retaliate against Mark Tyson. <laughs> 
They've already got my security clearance forms just, and all Just remember, about me. self-distancing is the right choice. <laughs> hey, guys, thank you so much for listening. This has really been an interesting series of conversations. We're going to do our best to keep up with the podcast. We are. Suggestions, ideas, reviews, rating, and lots and lots of love. Always welcome. We, Haters, we might have, must go away. We might have to call it in, but that's what Danny does every day. <laughs> Mark <laughs> never calls in being a jerk. Bye, guys. Bye. Stay safe. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.